Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome, everybody. Uh, Most of you know I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club, and I'm going to do the ritual and gavel us to order here. So welcome to today's meeting of the club. You can find the club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. You can see our videos on YouTube, sometimes even live streamed of our programs, and catch up with the club on Facebook and Twitter. So I'm going to moderate a wonderful uh, program today with our distinguished guest, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives and the Congressional Representative for California's 12th District right here in San Francisco. Now in her second term as Speaker, Nancy Pelosi is the first and only woman to have held this position and is considered the most powerful woman in the political history of the United States. Among other... Yes. Among her other achievements, she was responsible for the political strategy and implementation that led to the Affordable Care Act during President Obama's presidency. She is also in her 17th term as a U.S. Congresswoman representing this great city of San Francisco. She's the author of the 2008 book, Know Your Power, and indeed she does. When Nancy Pelosi first ran for political office at the age of 47, she wasn't new to politics. She worked with her father while he served as mayor of Baltimore. Then she worked for Jerry Brown's presidential campaign and served as the Democratic Party chair here in California. She developed through those many years the policy and strategic leadership qualities that would propel her to the peak of American politics and public service. I have a personal story about Nancy's dedication. She and I were on a congressional fact-finding trip in 1985 to Central America. We were in Managua, Nicaragua. She was then the finance chair of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. We were staying at a hotel in downtown Managua. The rest of us all went out to dinner. On the late side in Central America, we came back at 11 or 12 at night. There were no cell phones at the time, no phones in the rooms. We found Nancy standing in the lobby at the payphones, making calls to her network as part of her duties as Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee Chair. This is truly a dedicated woman, and I always hold that image in mind of that sort of dark and deserted lobby late at night in Managua, Nicaragua, when I think of Nancy and her hard work for all of us. In the first 100 days of the 116th Congress, Speaker Pelosi and House Democrats have worked on their For the People agenda, passing legislation to clean up corruption and restore ethics to Washington, D.C., passed a bipartisan background checks bill and what many Democrats call a landmark paycheck fairness bill. Under Speaker Pelosi, House Democrats are also pursuing a bipartisan infrastructure deal, looking at ways to expand and protect the right to vote, tackling climate change, and lowering health care costs and prescription drug prices for all Americans. This progress comes as Democrats welcome the most diverse caucus in the history of Congress, including more than 100 women in the same Congress that America will mark uh, 100 years since women won the right to vote. So today, we'll talk about the state of the country, the outlook for progress despite a divided Congress, and the future of the Democratic Party as we head toward the 2020 presidential election. Please give a warm welcome to our representative in Congress and our national political leader, Nancy Pelosi. Welcome. We have so many things to talk about. And uh, I think because it's top of mind for everybody, let's start with Robert Mueller's statement this morning. (laughs) So most people know the news. 
He's shut down his office, resigned from the Justice Department. He's uh, said that if he had confidence that no crimes had been committed, he would have reported that. Um, He made a number of other statements about a president not being able to be convicted of a crime while in office. Um, Tell us, I know you've made one comment already this morning. What is your reaction to his statements this morning? Thank you, Gloria, for your question and for the invitation to be here today. It's also wonderful to be at the Commonwealth Club with so many members of the club and uh, concerned citizens, especially my family, my daughter Christine, her husband Peter, her father-in-law Phil Kaufman, and my, our grandson uh, Octavio. And uh, Welcome. <laughs> And I understand my son Paul, our son Paul is here, Paul Jr. someplace. Paul, welcome. In any event, uh, this is a family affair for us always. We always like to hear, whether we're present or viewing or listening, uh, to what is of interest uh, to our community. And I want to salute uh, Gloria Duffy. She's just so remarkable, and we're so blessed to have her in the role that we have. While she mentioned what I was doing while they were having a late Central America-style dinner, I'll tell you what she was doing during the day. And this was so remarkable to all of us because it was um, we were there to see what was happening. Uh, Madeline Huss-Russell, many of you maybe have heard of Madeline Huss-Russell, but she had something called the Columbia Foundation, which sponsored a California trip to Central America. And this is history, so... We went, and it was Democrats and Republicans, uh, NGOs. It was, it was lovely. We, and when we were there and we were observing what they were teaching in school, what, what was happening with then Ortega, still Ortega, uh, in uh, Nicaragua, but what was happening in El Salvador uh, and the rest, and as well as uh, Honduras, where some of the Contras were, whatever, Gloria was always taking notes. Dr. Duffy, Gloria was always taking notes. And she was so serious. And she was, she had, she is, as you know, an expert on the Soviet Union, Russia. And she was taking notes as to the equipment, whether it was the helicopter, the parts, the, the airplanes, the weapons that were there. And she knew their provenance. But we, could, we, we didn't know how they could have so much stuff there until we later found out about Iran-Contra. But she was really getting to the heart of the matter right then and there. So it was an honor to travel with her then. It's an honor to be with her today. Thank you, Gloria. So this morning, we all heard a very patriotic American make his presentation, uh, have the deepest... Um, respect uh, for special counsel, well, now former special counsel Mueller, and what he had to say. And as Gloria indicated, he did say if he saw any evidence that the president was not, um, was innocent, he would have let us know. If he had any evidence that the president was not uh, guilty, he would have let us know, but he didn't. He didn't, and I think that was very, very important. While I have the deepest respect for him and thank him and his team for present the presentation of facts that will further lead us to uh, help us in the Congress and in the courts, this is a very valuable contribution. I am gravely disappointed in the Justice Department for their attitude, uh, their uh, misrepresentation of the Mueller report to begin with, their uh, hiding behind something that you could never find in the Constitution, that the president is above the law, and their misrepresentations, even under oath by the Attorney General to the Congress of the United States. So we, as we will continue on our path, which was led by our six chairmen who are magnificent, Adam Schiff, who's coming, Jerry Nadler, Judiciary, Elijah Cummings, um, Government Reform and Oversight, Maxine Waters, Financial Services, uh, uh, Richie Neal, the President's Taxes, Ways and Means, and um, uh, um, Elliot Engel, Foreign Affairs, all have a piece of this. Last week, we had three victories uh, in the courts. One, Elijah Cummings Court uh, won the 
president's accountant that they have to share the information. Two, Maxine Waters, the Deutsche Bank decision, which is they have to share the information. And three, not related to the Russia investigation or that, but related to other problems we have with the president and his view of the Constitution, is that uh, we, uh, the court said that he cannot use Defense Department funds to build a wall, to use that money to build a wall. We also had a victory in Adam Schiff's committee in that the Ju Justice Department, under threat of subpoena and, and legal action, uh, decided that they would give certain important documents to the committee, and that was a victory. That was four days, four uh, decisions in five days, very important to advancing our getting the facts for the American people, getting the truth for the American people. Where they will lead us, we shall see. Nothing is off the table. But we do want to make such a compelling case, such an ironclad case, that even uh, the uh, Republican Senate, which at the time seems to be not a, an objective jury, uh, will be convinced of the path that we have to take as a country. So you mentioned the victories in court. You mentioned the various committees doing their investigations. Some in Congress want to go further. Representative Steve Cohen of Tennessee opened a dedicated impeachment inquiry, Judiciary Committee, potentially. Are you... Judiciary uh, Committee what? I, well, open a specific investigation of, in, of impeachment. No, the, so, uh, you mean he as a member of the yes. committee? Because yes. the committee has not taken right. that position. So yeah. uh, there are Democrats in Congress who want to go further than yeah. the existing yeah. committee investigations. How do you feel about that? Do you think there's a role for an additional uh, dedicated investigation? Well, let me just say that I'm very proud of our, our House Democrats. They've been very, uh, shall we say conscientious about how they've reached their decisions, and I think it's like 35 of them out of 238, or maybe it's 38 of them out of 238 have said that they wanted to be outspoken on impeachment, and many of them are reflecting their views as well as those of their constituents. Many constituents want to impeach the president, but we want to do what is right and what gets results, what gets results. And we have to remember... So, yes, there are some, and, and the press makes more of a fuss about the, two, the 38 than the 200, who are over half of the Congress, after half of the, of the Democrats in the House sit on one of these six committees. So they're all on a path of finding more information. Just to recall, many of you were not born then, but during the... Uh, what would be, not become impeachment, but the impeachment investigation of Richard Nixon, it took months and months of a Senate committee that was solely dedicated to uh, researching uh, impeachment before they then decided to have articles of impeachment come from the House, which were never executed because the House and Senate agreed. It was a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. We have a different scenario now. So the the case has to be very compelling to the American people. So we are legislating, and we wish the press would cover more of that. Uh, thank you, Gloria, for pointing out some of the bills that we have passed and sent to the Senate about gun safety, women's rights, uh, uh, equal pay for equal work, uh, uh, Violence Against Women Act, gun safety, the list goes on, uh, climate action now, the list goes on. But in any event, we're legislating, we're investigating, and we are litigating. And we're going to, as we go down the path, make a decision based on the strongest possible case to get the best results for the American people. And the action taken by uh, the um, special counsel today, uh, I commend him for the work that they did to present the facts. Now we have to get it unredacted for the public, but nonetheless, and for the Congress, by the way, They'll say to me, we'll show you. And I say, that's not it. We want the American people to know. Well, you're going to show me, and then I'm bound by classified uh, rules of the House not to tell anybody? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. But in any event, I think that you know, everybody wants justice. Everybody wants the president to be held accountable. 
in the most serious way, and everybody believes, I mean, I'm talking on the Democratic side, that no one is above the law, especially the President of the United States. We'll come back to the remedies, the 2020 election and the run-up. Uh, to sure the there'll be some questions further about the future. Of but let's, let's talk about legislative priorities. Uh, you mentioned some of the bills. Um, I didn't know this, but uh, I read recently that the first 10 HR numbers are reserved for the speaker's priorities, that is, House resolutions or bill numbers. So um, you have, I think, nine or 10 on the, on the list. Let's talk about some of those priorities. Number one, I understand, is the For the People Act of 2019, voting rights and ethics. What does that do? What's the intent? The For the People Act is something that was a very major uh, uh, priority for us in the campaign. Last year, our agenda was for the people. One was to lower health care costs by lowering the cost of prescription drugs and preserving of the uh, pre-existing pre condition benefit. Number two, lower health care costs. Number two, increase paychecks by building the infrastructure of America in a green, resilient way. And number three was clean government, cleaner government. Lower health care costs, bigger paychecks, cleaner government. And this was legislation set out to address uh, the fact that Big, dark money has too much of a role in decision-making in Washington, D.C. And sometimes people say to me, well, I understand the health care thing. I understand the um, building infrastructure and paychecks. But why is H.R. 1 important? Well, it's central. It caffeinates everything else. It gives people confidence that if big, dark money from the fossil fuel industry were not interfering with our uh, a climate uh, a crisis and our agenda to address it. If big, dark money from the uh, gun lobbyists were not in the play, we might be able to pass in the Senate, which we've already passed in the House, Gun Violence Prevention Act, the list goes on. And so we're, that is central, central to the integrity of people voting in Congress. I'm not saying that everybody is painting everyone with the same brush, but what I am saying is right now you see the president in denial of science on climate. How could that be? How could that be? In addition to that, we won this election. This is not politics, this is civics. We won this election in the most gerrymandered, voter-suppressed political arena you could possibly imagine. And that isn't the way it should be. We were able to win in spite of the fact that they suppressed the vote, they gerrymandered the district, they had politicians choosing their constituents instead of constituents choosing their politicians. And nonetheless, we still won because we leapfrog, we leapfrog, is that what it would be? <laughs> over, over all of that with HR1. Part of HR1 and central to it is John Lewis's piece, which is about ending voter suppression. We can go more into that if you wish. And the other piece of it is to pass the Voting Rights Act. And that is in H.R. 1, but it's also um, taking a little, we passed H.R. 1, but we need to do more on H.R. 4, the vote, passing the Voting Rights Act, because we have to have, again, ironclad case in the court so that they don't overturn, as the Supreme Court did, in my view, wrongly, uh, the Voting Rights Act that was became law in 2007, that recent. So H.R. 1 is, is about just not a breath, breath of fresh air, a gust of wind coming through D.C. to make the change that must be changed for the good of the people to increase the uh, impact of, of, of grassroots people, of small donors, and decrease the role of big, dark money in politics. So H.R. 2 infrastructure plan. Yeah, well, this is the bill that we're trying to put together with the president, and we're all we won't ready. Go through, we won't go through all 10. <laughs> he didn't want to hear it. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, I still feel optimistic. 80% of the time that I've had a conversation in person or by phone with the president, he has mentioned he wants to do infrastructure, and I think he still does. Uh, does he want to do it enough to 
not be in a huff over my saying that he's involved in a cover-up, well, we'll see. But uh, this is not for the faint of heart. I mean, you either want to do it or you don't want to do it, and you shouldn't be offended by somebody speaking truth about your actions. <laughs> <laughs> but this is essential. And may if I, if I may, um, Dr. Duffy, if I may, Madam President. Gloria. <laughs> I like that sound, Madam President. And by the way, <laughs> the one thing that breaks my heart is when they introduce me as the highest ranking woman. I keep thinking, no, it wasn't supposed to be this way. We're supposed to have a woman president. Anyway, that may sound political to some of you. <laughs> let, me, let me just place this idea, this uh, infrastructure in a, a, a larger perspective. I believe that we have three imperatives that we must address in our nation, and, and our For the People agenda is part of that, but it's bigger even than that. And one of them, one of them is the existential threat to our planet that the crime, climate crisis poses, and the denial that this administration and our friends on the other side of the aisle, whether because they're cozy with the fossil fuel industry or whatever it is, are in denial about the science. This is a challenge to the planet of this generation, and young people understand it better than even the President of the United States. So that's one. The other, one of the others, is the obscenity, the obscenity of income disparity in our country. This is wrong that the fact that CEOs can make three, four hundred times as much as uh, their employees when it used to be maybe 40 years ago, only 30, 40 times as much. But now in a two-week period, a CEO might make as much as a, an employee makes in 10 years. It's just wrong. And it's not good for our economy because we need to have a strong middle class, which is the backbone of our economy and which is... Um, it, it, which consumer confidence is good for the economy. So disparity of income, climate crisis, all served by building the infrastructure of America, raising paychecks, uh, the, the, the amount of paychecks, as well as doing it in a green, resilient way. And the third imperative, one imperative, address the climate crisis, Second imperative, disparity of income in our country. Third, the third issue, cleaner government, which makes the other two possible. So if we uh, channel our energies and our legislative priorities in a way uh, that advances those causes, addresses those priorities, it will be not only good for our economy and our society, it will be good for our, our democracy. And I want us to do it, and I say this to members, and sometimes, well, you tell me if you agree or not. I want to do it in a way, the priorities that we have through 1 through 10 here are those that have the very broad support in the public. Very broad support, gun safety, equal pay for equal work, violence against women. We've named some, gun violence uh, uh, prevention and the rest. Climate action now. Equality Act, ending discrimination against LGBTQ community. These issues have broad support in the public. And so that's where we want to go, is to make progress in the place where we have the most unity. Uh, I think our founders were brilliant. Thank God they made our Constitution amendable so we could ever be expanding freedom. But they also gave us guidance. They said, e pluribus unum, from many one. They couldn't imagine how many we would be or how different we'd be from each other but they knew that we had to strive for oneness, that our country is one, rather than to divide, but to unite. And that's what we hope to do in, in all of our actions, is to remember that guidance, which is very important. They're not out there to just pick a fight to pick a fight, or out there to get results to improve the lives of America's working families and for the children. 
So a small plug for the Commonwealth Club, we don't lobby or take positions, but for 11 years we've had a project called Climate One, which educates and promotes debate and learning about climate change. So we're very active in trying to spread awareness of the science and so on. There are a couple of different... Thank you for that. It's very important. And it's about public health, clean air, clean water, food safety, public health. It's about jobs, 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 green technology, America being preeminent in the world, green technology. It's about our national security. National security experts tell us all the time that the climate issues, whether it's rising sea levels, uh, encroachment of deserts, uh, drought, famine, all the rest, will cause migrations which can sometimes lead uh, to conflict. So it's a security issue, and then also it's a moral issue. If you believe, as I do, that this is God's creation, we have a moral responsibility to be good stewards. And if you don't even share that religious approach, we all know that we have a responsibility to to future generations to pass on this planet in a responsible way. So we have every motivation, whether it's security, jobs, health, morality, uh, to do what you have taken the lead on. And I thank the Common Club. Well, and and thank you for your leadership. There are a couple of different strategies in Congress uh, now uh, and on climate change. So there's the Green New Deal, uh, which some members are... uh, sponsoring legislation to support, and then there is uh, the legislation to shore up the Paris Climate Summit. Could you talk about where you fall among these different strategies, and why not the Green New Deal, which is a bit more comprehensive or radical, if in fact this is the existential threat? Well, the Green New Deal is a wonderful um, uh, aspirational statement, and that's what it is. It's not legislation. It's an aspirational statement, and it's a, a wonderful thing to uh, attract attention and uh, galvanize support, but it's not legislation. So we still have to, and that's why I appointed a select committee on climate headed by Kathy Castor, who's wonderful from Florida. She, she is on the Energy and Commerce Committee, a master at all of this, uh, to, and, and actually three freshmen, I put three freshmen on the committee as well, to, uh, to address what the best legislation is for us to go forward, in addition to what we passed H.R. 9, which is climate action now to reinforce our involvement with the Paris Accord and to ask the president what his, what his suggestions are. But that, that's, that's not legislation is legislation. As, um, advocacy is advocacy. So some of those things will be included. Some of them have nothing to do directly with climate. They have to do with... Um, uh, income and this or that, and again, all of this is related. But in terms of uh, what we put forth for the climate crisis initiative, uh, that will be developed. And I have tasked every committee of Congress, whether it's the Defense Committee, whether it's Energy and Commerce, the Natural Resources. Some of them are the natural domain of climate, but others, like Defense Department, Defense Department uses more energy and can be more, shall we say, climate uh, uh, conscious uh, than any of the departments and make a big difference. But of of them all, the the Ways and Means Committee in terms of how we would finance, how we go forward, Appropriations Committee, what initiatives we can take. But you have to know, let me just put this in this context. When I was speaker the first time, my flagship issue was climate, climate and energy independence. Working with President Bush, who didn't, he was a climate denier, but he understood that we had to clean up the air. And so we passed the biggest energy bill in the history of our country, the energy bill of 2007. It was like taking tens of millions of cars off the road when we uh, raised the cafe standards, the emission standards. Um, we did many other things uh, with a strong commitment for, uh, for renewables. And he signed the bill. He wanted, he wanted nuclear. I wanted renewables. He signed the bill. And then it came Japan. And so not much has happened on the nuclear side. But we got what we wanted on the um, renewable side. So, so this has been a priority uh, for us for a while. And then when we lost the majority, 
the many much of it unraveled. We had green the Capitol. They undid that. You know, that was some. It was important. It was symbolic, but nonetheless, they undid it anyway, and um, went back to this denial thing. Now we're in the majority. Pretty soon we'll have a president who will recognize the importance of the climate crisis and have policies that support that. But until we do, uh, we have to keep making this case with the American people about that's a ramification of elections, what happens on the climate issue. So, uh, so again, so we review everything on the table. What, some of the things that are contained in the Green New Deal are things that we've all been advocating for a while. Some are groundbreaking. Some, again, do not relate to the climate directly, but are important to be considered in their own uh, context. But we will, we will, this is an imperative. It is not an issue. It's not a bill. It is a value. It is, again, an imperative uh, that it get be done. But we want it to get done in a way that unifies people. Our friends in labor have unease with some aspects of the Green New Deal. And there's no reason why we can't come uh, to more unit. And, th and they have been there for us. We've had the Blue-Green Alliance, Blue and Green Alliance with them for a while on this. So we can bring people together, but they all have to be at the table as we shape the consensus that is the boldest, toughest common denominator and not any um, weakening of the resolve. You're wearing a pin today. Last, a couple of weeks ago, Madeleine Albright was with us, and we always ask her, what does her pin signify? Because she wears a different pin every day. You're wearing a very important pin. What is that? Well, Madeleine Albright has a beautiful array of pins, real pins, they're real. And uh, she always would say when she would come to testify, read my pin. So, <laughs> so it was about the environment, the butterflies. It was beautiful. I mean, they've been museum quality and on display. Mine is simply the mace, the symbol of power of the Speaker of the House. Uh, and uh, That's a big one. And um, when the Congress opens, you know, they enter with the mace. All rise. I mean, with the mace. <laughs> and every now and then I like to wear it back home so people can see. <laughs> you are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. My Let, bosses, I want you to see the jewelry. Let's talk about your leadership. Uh, Jerry Brown was with us recently, and we talked a little bit about accomplishments after the age of, say, 70. He talked a little bit about what he learned in his first term as governor, or his first round as governor, and how he applied those in his second round as governor. So what have you, what have you accomplished? What have you learned over time? Um, there's been this debate, of course, about Dianne Feinstein and should she retire and all of that. I've noticed that there's a lot of accomplishment by our leaders in their 70s. Do I consider this a rude question or what? <laughs> I would from anyone else but Gloria. Let me just say this. It's not, it's not meant to Let be Let me rude. say, I know that, I'm teasing. The... Um, Here's the thing. One thing that Jerry Brown said to me when uh, I became speaker again, he said, there's nothing as liberating as term limits. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a lesson in that, uh, don't you think? Because at a certain point when you have your experience, you know, you know, you know, you've Look, I think from my standpoint, one of the things that held me in good stead when I became leader to begin with, first of all, just to put it in context, I had never intended to run for Congress. Never. That was, or run for any public office. You said I'd worked with my father. I was a little girl. I witnessed public service. And, and uh, when I was in first grade, he became, when I was born, he was in 
Congress. When I became, was in first grade, he became the mayor of Baltimore, Thomas D'Alessandro. When I went to college, in my whole freshman year of college, he was still the mayor of Baltimore. It was the only life we knew is that public service is a noble calling. Doesn't mean you run for office or even just engage in campaigns, but you involved civically. And that they placed a big value on that, and that's part of what I learned there. But I also learned how to count votes, and that's an important thing. <laughs> I also learned, um, to, uh, what I say to candidates all the time, know your why. Why are you running? What is your vision? Show us. What do you know about it? Your knowledge. How do you expect to accomplish something? What is your strategic thinking, your vision, your knowledge, your strategic thinking? Most important thing, though, is how do you connect heart to heart? This is all up here, the rest of it, heart to heart with the voters so that you know, they know that you care about their hopes and dreams, their aspirations and their apprehensions. And that's really what is important. And that's kind of what you learn. I mean, I never intended to run for Congress, first of all, but then I never intended to run for leadership until people encouraged me to do so. But in the meantime, I was dig I dug deeply into my work on appropriations and on intelligence. And so I knew, I knew my subjects. And so I could negotiate from knowledge and strength and to promote a, a vision. And the... Um, so that when I became a leader, the experience I had was not a disadvantage because time had passed as I was gaining it, but it was a, an, an advantage. And now, uh, so, so when you're doing the job that I'm doing is you really have to know, again, the vision that we build as a consensus in our caucus, our goals, our vision, our why, the knowledge we bring to the discussion to make good judgments about the path we're on. Strategic thinking about getting it done. But then it is a question of courage. Courage. Every, you know everybody's commitment. You know their convictions. Who has the courage to make the votes? Because they're not always popular at home. And that is what experience teaches you as well, to be very, very respectful of what uh, motivates people to vote one way or another and to make a judgment as you establish priorities about what is really going to produce the result or what's just going to be a conversation because you want results for the American people. So I would say that um, in the passage of time uh, that uh, experience, as Jerry said, he says, since you brought him up, what he used to say um, when, uh, when he was running for governor the first time, you know, youth, we need youth, we need youth. And then when he ran the second time, <laughs> when he ran years later, he said, there's no substitute for experience. <laughs> so I would say that. But the, the main thing that, that I love so much about it is to be able to encourage other people to take responsibilities, to be clear about their vision, to know what they're talking about, to understand how they can have a plan for success. And many of members of Congress, of course, come flocking in with all of this, but to give them the opportunity. And for example, just going back to Watergate for a moment, um, when that class came in, the Watergate babies, it was transformative, it was a huge class and transformative, similar to the class we have now. Not one of those freshmen that came in that year had a gavel, was a chair of a subcommittee. Not one of them in the first year. In this Congress, with our transformative, new, diverse class, 18 freshmen are chairs of subcommittees. 18 chairs. And, um, and their leadership is magnificent. For example, one of the first Native American women ever to serve in the Congress, and there are two in this class, but they're the first two, Deb Holland, she is the chair of the subcommittee of the Natural Resources Committee on Public Lands. Imagine what that means in Native American community. So we try to give them guidance about committee selection and this or that. And some who don't have gavels are on committees that 
are very strong for their district. So we made sh sure that people uh, got what they wanted when they came and got, and got to play leadership roles in it. And that's one of the advantages that I have and just kind of, uh, you may not realize how important this is to you, but think about it in a new, fresh way when I'm saying that to, to the Fred. Think about this in this way and let me know. Talk to your folks about it. Let me know. But I think this would be a good path. And some of them knew on their own. They didn't need any guidance, that's for sure. But did you said we were a diverse class. 60% of our class, of our freshmen, no. 60% of the House Democrats are women, people of color, LGBTQ. And the same holds true for as chairs of committees, not only a seat at the table, a seat at the head of the table. So, so um, I think that uh, whatever it means to me, I think what it means to my colleagues is uh, they trust my judgment. Um, and I consider that uh, an advantage for our caucus. And I have nothing but respect for our elder stateswoman. <laughs> <laughs> And it's but the funny thing is, Diane, Diane Senior, and uh, in, in the South, seniority is everything. They just block those committees and hold them down. And here we're like, we want something fresh and new. Well, wait a minute. With seniority goes power in the Senate of the United States, and she has great power in the Senate of the United States. Immigration. Um, Donald Trump has a, uh, announced a merit-based immigration plan. You've said some things about this publicly. Tell us what you think about this. How should we be proceeding? You want me to talk about Donald Trump? <laughs> or the, Let me the... talk about Ronald Reagan instead. Okay. This is what Ronald Reagan said. This is the last speech I will make as President of the United States. Does that get your attention, Ronald Reagan? This is the last. And I want to communicate a message the country I love. He went on to say, he talked about the Statue of Liberty and what it meant as a beacon of hope to the world and what it meant to people coming to our country or people who had come but saw the Statue of Liberty first. He said, our parents, our grandparents, our ancestors. Then he went on to say that, in effect, and I want you to look it up because it's much more poetic than what I'm going to say, but this was the essence. The vital force of America's preeminence in the world is every new generation of newcomers who come to our country. And when America fails to recognize that, America will fail to be preeminent in the world. We cannot close the door to immigrants to our country. If we do so, we will fail to be preeminent. Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan, President Reagan, President Bush, President Clinton, President Bush, President Barack Obama all subscribed to the vitality, the rejuvenation, the reinvigoration of America, of that immigration is to our country. Hopes, dreams, aspirations, courage, optimism, determination to make the future better. All American traits, these newcomers, make America more American until the 45th president of the United States. Now, do we need to have comprehensive immigration reform? Of course we do. And there was a bipartisan bill that passed the Senate that the Republicans in the House would not bring up a few years ago, unfortunately. It was a lot of compromises. I didn't love it to death, but I loved it enough. And, uh, but they just would not give us a vote on it. We have to get to that place. When the president says merit, turn it upside down. That means make America white again, have people leave, just go back, and we'll just let in who we like. I don't know if Merritt counted for when his wife's family <laughs> came into the country. I don't know. Maybe it did. God bless them if it did. But he calls that chain migration, which he wants to get rid of, family unification. Instead, call it Merritt. Should we attach a a uh, green card to the diploma of so many scientists and engineers and all the rest and graduate students who train in the US so that they can stay here, of course. But that's not the point. The point is that the president um, 
does not share the view of even Ronald Reagan and two Bushes in recent history as to the value of the vitality of immigrants to our country. So there's an audience question about abortion rights, and there's a sense that some of the state legislation going on is gradually removing some of the Roe v. Wade protected rights. So in that context, the question is, how can we finally get or preserve abortion rights for all American women? This is really a tragedy, what is, what is happening in terms of Alabama. I was in Ohio recently. They have a law. I was in Missouri recently. They have, it's, it's, um, it's heartbreaking because it's so disrespectful of women and women's right to choose. And it, it goes along with, we don't want equal pay for equal work, you know, all those kinds of things as well. It's a sign of disrespect. But it's one that is, uh, is brutal. Uh, the Roe v. Wade is the law of the land. It should be upheld instead of being undermined. I don't want to be a fear monger, but I do think we have to take drastic action. By that I mean full blown mobility, um, mobilization, uh, every place. My daughter Christine participated in one of the, what, 400 you had in one day right after Alabama. They had all over the country on this. This is absolutely wrong. But just to, if you promise not to tell anybody, I told you this. <laughs> this is how he got to be president of the United States. Three years ago from this June, the president said, I will choose my justices from this list. These were all anti-Roe v. Wade judges. Just about two weeks ago, this, uh, within the past few weeks, the Senate approved some judges. One of them said that plan, uh, family planning caused cancer. Another one said Planned Parenthood killed 150,000 people in recent time. Another one said that family planning undermined the religious, the religious nature of our country. So understand this, this isn't about just abortion. It's about family planning. It's about a woman's right to choose the size and timing of her family with her own family, her own God, her own doctors, and the rest. So this is, understand, it's for 25 years, my first 25 years in office, I kept saying to people, it's about family planning. Understand this, they use abortion as their, because they see division there and they describe it in horrible ways. But, but this is also about family planning. You, you, if you understood that they, they believe that all coming together should be about conceiving a child. So marriage equality and Roe v. Wade are both of their targets in that regard. And it's really so very, very sad. So we just have to be active. We don't agonize, we organize. And we have to organize all over the country so that people understand that this is not the right thing to do. This, the, the hypocrisy of it all, that they would say, no exception for rape and incest, with something like that happen in their family, do you think they would not avail themselves of other choices? And then for them to say a doctor who performs such a thing, such a, a procedure would go to jail for 99 years or something like that. This is not real. Now, I, you know, I have this, this fight with them all the time over the years because I felt my husband Paul and I were blessed to have five children. And we had five children when we brought Alexandra, our youngest, home from the hospital. Our oldest, Nancy Corinne, was turning six that week. So I know the program, you know? <laughs> and that's great for us, but why should that be something that someone else should subscribe to? So when we had this debate on the floor some years ago, and I was just, it just steams me because it's not their business, and they don't know what they're talking about. I even think they need a lesson in the birds and the bees. So one day on the floor of the house, and we're having this back and forth. And I say this as an ardent, practicing, devout Catholic. I mean, this is not right. You know, it's just not right. Anyway, on the floor of the, of the house, one of them got up and said, Nancy Pelosi thinks she knows more about having babies than the Pope. <laughs> yeah? 
you could say that. <laughs> and he probably would too, but imagine, imagine, imagine. And if you, if you would just see, if you just see this line of men standing up in the chamber signing up for these anti-choice uh, uh, um, discharge petition that they have now, they just don't, they just don't get it. But you know what? We, again, don't agonize, organize. We just have to understand that elections have ramifications. And without the support of the uh, evangelical community whom I work with on immigration, they're wonderful in immigration. Many of them do believe this is God's creation and we have to uh, protect our planet. But on this subject, he is forgiven. When I say to them, you know, you, you care about immigration, and yet he's taking babies out of the arms of their mothers. He's separating families. How can you, how can you look the other way? Well, he's doing the best he can. Really? That's the best he can? Well, maybe it is, but that's certainly not good enough for humanity. But it is, um, it is, it is what got him there, and that's where he is. That's what brought him to the dance. That's where he is, and he's appointing those judges who will follow that course of action, and that's most unfortunate. So this next year and a half, may it go by quickly, uh, and everybody be in good health. Um, and so we'll see what happens next. But, but we really do have to fight in each of these states, and fam uh, NARAL and Planned Parenthood and so many of the other organizations have been working effectively in different states to try to offset some of the assaults on the, the um, judgment of women, the judgment of women, and their families, and men, too. I mean, families. It's about families. But this is, this is really tragic because of what it could lead to in those communities. And by the way, do we all agree it harms poorer people more than other people and the injustice of it all? So there are these many issues and there's the question of the upcoming presidential election. There's a question from an audience member. Setting aside the merits of a particular candidate or another, what do you think is the optimal strategy for winning the presidential election? Focusing on swing voters, Democratic voters, or what? You want to talk politics? Yes. <laughs> I thought we were in some kind of a nonprofit arena here. I was, I was restraining myself. <laughs> aside from specific candidates. Let me just say thank you to all of the candidates who are running to put themselves on the line into the arena to, um, to subject themselves to whatever criticism and the rest. This is not for the faint of heart to go out there and put yourself forward. So thank, I thank them all. Any one of them would be a better president than the current president. <laughs> They're even better than that. That's a low threshold, but they're even better than that. I do believe, I do believe that what I said earlier, show your vision, why? Show your knowledge, what do you know about it so that people respect your judgment. Strategic thinking, okay? Now, all of them have that. I think they've been brilliant. Who connects? That's where the election, who connects to the heart-to-heart -heart with the American people. And I think that will make a difference in as the field, if it does, winnows down before the convention. Uh, and I think it probably will. But it is um, a message that is wonderful for me in San Francisco is something that we have to incorporate into a, a more mainstream message across the country. It doesn't mean uh, that we lessen our intensity or anything. It just means where we have the most consensus to win. That's how we won last year. Respecting, what, again, my San Francisco message is a big winner here. It may not necessarily be a big winner other places, but raising the minimum wage, healthcare for all Americans, protecting our environment, all, all the things that are something that we would all easily agree with and to do so in the most aggressive way are, are um, mainstream messages across the country. So we'll just see who can, I always just say, who connects? Um, because we've had great candidates 
before who had all the vision, all the knowledge and judgment, all the strategic thinking that not necessarily always connect. So, so look out for the emotional uh, connection in addition to the rest of it. But aren't we proud of them? They're all so courageous. I'm going to tell you something. It is not for the faint of heart. And I'll just take, tell you myself. People ask me, how do you take all the hits, and the target, blah, blah, blah. I said, that. I said, that's their problem. If I were not effective, I wouldn't be an object of their uh, <laughs> negativity. <laughs> But like right now, there is a false video that the Republicans are putting out on Facebook. Now, this is self-serving of me to say, but I say it because I don't want other... Women say to me sometimes, I would run, but I couldn't subject my family to what you go through. So well, we need you to run. So you know, we have to get past that. But when a, a, something like Facebook says, I know this is false... But we're, it's a lie, but we're showing it anyway. Well, to me, it says two things. One, uh, that they prob I was giving them the benefit of the doubt on Russia, but clearly they, I thought it was unwitting, but clearly they wittingly were accomplices and enablers of false information to go across Facebook. A. But B, if you. If you, you're a candidate, whether it's a woman or whatever, but I'm, I'm trying to get more women and people of color and young people to run, and men too, but uh, if, if you were going to go out there, why would you subject yourself to that? To that. And that's what uh, disappoints me. It's like, I don't care. I can take it. Experience, you know, I can, I can handle it all. If I didn't have thick skin, I wouldn't be the Speaker of the House. But... These other people are new to the arena. And we want, and they're fabulous people, and they have talent and courage and the rest, and they have options. Well, if I, I could do that, or I could be, do this or that, I said, well, we don't want people without options. For, that's why we want you to run for Congress, because you could also do this or that. And so, so that negative in the arena, um, you know, as I say, in the arena, you have to be ready to take a punch but you have to be ready to throw one, too. As I say, for the children. For the children. For the children. So, yeah, it is, um, it is uh, to women, though, really know your power. Know how important it is to have many more women. We have 106 in the House of Representatives. 91 are Democrats because we made a decision to elect women every year, more and more women uh, to the Congress. And many of them are chairs uh, of committees. So, but it's, it's uh, the uniqueness, is it different? Yeah, it's different, and different is important. Different view at the table. So when you're thinking about it, think about how needed you are. And I have no doubt, this is an absolute fact. You might consider the rest opinion. This isn't an exact fact. If we lower the role, decrease the role of money in politics, and increase the level of civility in politics, we'll have many more women and minorities and pe young people taking a chance and running for, for office. So um, the club this year and next year is doing some concentrated programming on mental health and mental illness. Uh, we're collaborating with the Pritzker Family Fund and UCSF. We had a great talk a couple weeks ago by the actress Glenn Close, who's working to destigmatize uh, mental illness. Some of the candidates, uh, presidential candidates, are surfacing interesting ideas, and one of them is Seth Moulton, a uh, member of Congress. Uh, he's made a proposal for uh, comprehensive mental health legislation that would improve benefits for veterans and screen veterans. I think this is coming to some extent out of concern about mass shootings and so on. Uh, screen veterans, uh, checkup, mental health checkups, also screen um, school children, increase the Pentagon budget for mental I'm not care. familiar with his legislation, but let's enlarge the issue to the mental health issue, yes. which we did past legislation for mental health parity in um, it is a, it is a health issue it is a physical health issue you know it's mental but it is uh, it is to be treated because it has 
physical aspects to it. We have that. Then we have that part of that into the Affordable Care Act. But what we really need in addition to that, and the, uh, thank you for mentioning, and, and, and Seth is a veteran, uh, the part about the veterans. Right now, and, and this is something we spend a lot of time with, honoring our veterans. They, we say on the battlefield, we leave no, the military leaves no soldier behind when they come home. We leave no veteran behind when they come home. If every uh, mental health professional who is in school right now, when, upon graduation, every one of them went to, to address veterans' mental health concerns, we would still not have enough. And there'd be nobody for anybody else. So we have to en enable many more people to be engaged, whether we're helping with their uh, student loan debt and all the rest of that, to, to go down this path, because we do need the healthcare professionals. The beautiful thing about our vets is that maybe a third of them have admitted to mental health, a third of the returning vets, uh, uh, mental health um, challenges, and that's a big thing because it had been a stigma before, and now at least a third, and so that maybe mean more uh, are, are challenged in that way. PTSD, a big challenge to the families, the caregivers of, of these vets and the rest. But it, with all the focus we have on vets, it's not just the vets. It's everybody in our community. And while it is an issue that relates to mass murder, most people, 99-something-something percent of people with mental illness are not violent people in our country. So we cannot kind of say, but for that, we wouldn't have these um, mass murders. But, it, but it, is, it is an issue. And we cannot let those who want to avoid um, uh, gun violence prevention the registering, at, not registering the guns, but to, to have people sign up uh, for um, background checks. The background checks and the rest of that. We can't have people say, well, we don't really need that. It's just a mental health issue. No, it isn't just a mental health issue. Guns shouldn't be in the hands of certain people. Some of them may have a mental challenge, but it, the mental health argument is not an argument against background check. Uh, legislation. So this is this is deadly serious in terms of how we engage ourselves in conflict and send our people to war, how we treat them when they come home, how we recognize that in families have made nothing to do with veterans that we have these challenges. Glenn Close has a family situation. She visited me recently in DC. Uh, ab about these issues. And again, removing uh, the stigma is very important. But having the funding is also very, very, is even more important to do the investments that we need in uh, the, the resources, whether it's healthcare professionals or the diagnosis that are important early enough on. But I appreciate your question about mental health writ large. There are many proposals. Uh, in the Congress, but all of them will have to come through as we subject all of the health proposals, whether it's Medicare for all, whether it's health care for all, but, but they're all different proposals on the table just to have um, health care for all Americans, and that means mental health. And it, it isn't even a separate category it, to us. It isn't even a separate category, but it has been neglected, so we want to uh, treat it in a more important way, uh, it, the manifestations of it in a more important way. But all of it comes back to building the infrastructure of America as we, and building the human infrastructure in America, healthcare, education, investments in the future for our country, uh, so that we, to build our country, we have the workforce development to do it, uh, to have our families succeed they know that they will be able to have financial stability. And the biggest challenge to that is healthcare, healthcare costs. So all of it, all of it is, is connected. And that's why the imperative of ending the disparity, 
facing the challenge of the climate crisis, but the door to it all, opening the door to all of it, is lowering the role of big, dark money in politics. I thank you, Commonwealth Club, for being a venue for the discussion of ideas in a way that, as I, as I said of our founders, we are one. Whatever our differences, we respect each other in the discussion. Uh, we don't question motivation except to say, let's share our vision for a country where we, uh, liberty, justice, how bad our, how bad, I'll end with this, how bad our founders, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as part of our national purpose. That pursuit means that we have to work together to be one. Commonwealth Club is a force for all of that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>